HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn. They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out, a show all about the food and culture of the American Midwest. I'm your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. In this series, we go beyond the stereotypes of flyover country to explore the untold tales of the region. Each episode is a new journey, bringing together the people, places, and flavors that make up the unique culinary tapestry of the region. In this hour, we welcome Rob Connolly, a trailblazing restaurateur from Missouri who is bringing historic Ozark cuisine to life. Rob's thirst for knowledge and enthusiasm to share it is absolutely infectious. He approaches each meal as a history lesson and a respectful nod to both tradition and sustainability. Get ready to be enveloped by the spirit of the Ozarks on this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. Rob, we are so excited that you are joining the show today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. You have such an, an interesting story, an interesting life path, um, and and just a lot of really interesting uh, passions, uh, all kind of culminating in this culinary space. Um, but you didn't always... Um, I guess, reside in the culinary space. So you had a different career, and then you decided to go a different direction. So how did that all come about? Yeah, I am in thir my third career right now. And uh, I went to school in my undergrad for marketing and advertising, and I actually double minored art and education. Uh, but that ultimately led me to do uh, work in athletics and um, fitness. And it was because of my work-study projects that I did as an undergrad, and uh, that took me down a path I had never planned on. But ultimately, mm -hmm. I got a doctorate in sports psychology from Purdue, and uh, I, I love learning. I love exploring new new ideas, uh, but I never wanted to practice in, in sports psychology. So as soon as I got <laughs> that degree, I immediately moved out west and uh, started doing nonprofit work and did that for a number of years. And there I, I did all sorts of topics, uh, access to health care for the uninsured. Mm -hmm. uh, we did education for uh, the children of farm laborers. 
wow. uh, kids, kids who were on the side of the field and trying to get them educated. Um, and ultimately, the, the one that led to my career change was I had dabbled in a number of different substance abuse programs just because mm-hmm. of the populations I was working with. And not to interrupt you, but what yeah. state? You said out west, but what state were you in? Yeah, so at first I was in southern Colorado in a very mm-hmm. rural community called Alamosa. Okay. Uh, and, and then later I ended up in Silver City, New Mexico. And that's a, a little mountain town uh, just north of the Mexican border down in the corner of Arizona. And so I, I moved there for a job, and it was at first to do more access to health care for the uninsured. This is kind of pre-Obamacare stuff. Right. And uh, it ultimately morphed into running a meth treatment program. Uh, it was a huge issue there. And yeah. at that point, I had a pretty good career behind me in grant writing and program management. And so mm-hmm. I, I jumped in and ran a meth program for three years. And uh, as that started to wind down, I, I just knew it was time to make a change. I had been chasing grants just a little too long. And and so and you just stopped. I mean, and look, I, I have to say that, you know, for, for me, I this speaks to me because I I am a licensed social worker. I've spent most of my career in, in health policy and nonprofits and that sort of thing and found a, a passion in, in, you know, the art of storytelling and in the culinary space in my own way. So I... It is, to me at least, does not sound as weird um, as it might to some. But so you just stopped and you were in New Mexico um, and you started a restaurant, right? Yeah, I I was in a town that I didn't want to leave, um, Silver City, New Mexico. It's a beautiful little place. And so I was trying to find some stability because when you're in nonprofits and grant writing, you really have to follow the money. Yep, and it's only as good as the next grant. That's right. And so I I just got to the point where I said, I don't want to move from this town. Now, of course, in hindsight, I have moved. But at the time, uh, I was looking for stability. So my spouse and I decided to open up a gourmet grocery. And it, it was funny because it was a super small, very remote town. And we would just ask people at the ice cream shop and the coffee shop what they thought the town needed. And over and over, we heard people say, we want you to go to Tucson and go to Trader Joe's. And I I thought, well, like, I get that, but I'm not going to drive three hours each way once a week. That's that's ridiculous. But what they were saying is they wanted those type of foods here in town. Right. So I said, well, instead of doing that drive, why don't I just open a a market? And I had never done I had never had my own business. I had never done retail. But I figured it out, and and we start bringing in all these crazy ingredients and some real basic things, things that we knew we would love, and if we loved them, we could help people understand that they would love them too. Well, give give, give us some examples of something that is you know different and unique uh, ingredients that you bring in. Yeah, so uh, I think the funniest example is we had a fish sauce section. So not just a fish sauce, <laughs> we had seven different fish sauces. Because I knew that to make different types of foods, you would need each of the seven. And so the the whole uh, package that they were getting is people would walk in, they would come get their chocolate bar from Germany, maybe, um, or their spicy snacks from India. And then I would be there and say, hey, have you seen this fish sauce? And of course they hadn't. And, And so we would teach them how to use it and give them the other ingredients they needed to make that dish. And and. It worked great. I mean, people loved uh, having access to all those things and the education around the different ingredients. Which I'm excited that we're going to talk about a little bit later in this interview because educating people on sort of the, the, the life behind the dish is something that you use later in your career as well, I know. But we'll hold on to that thought. Yeah, well, and part of it is the, the idea that to that point and really for a number of years after that, I had not once repeated a recipe in my own house. So from, oh, let's say 97, 98 to 2010, maybe not quite that long, uh, we would subscribe to, this will sound strange coming from a James Beard nominated chef, but Cooking Light Magazine. You know, back in the day, Cooking Light Magazine was was really cool. Uh, It's only later when they start going to five ingredients in five minutes, which wasn't as exciting to me. That's not what I was looking Mm -hmm. for. 
And so every night we would pull out the magazine and do a different recipe. And in that process, we were learning all these cuisines, all these techniques, and all I sorts of different ingredients. And and I, I still say it's a good way of doing it. The more modern vernacular around it is uh, the cook the book, or you work your way through one cookbook. Right. It's the same idea. And and so all that manifested in the foods that we were putting on the shelves at the grocery. But as anyone who's done retail knows that's a lot of inventory just sitting on the shelf, especially mm-hmm. in a small remote town where not people didn't necessarily know how to use all the ingredients. And so some of these really esoteric things that we would bring in that I wanted, you know, I'd buy a case of 12 and I would sell three and sit on the other nine. And so we got to a point where we realized we were sitting on money. And um, in the meantime, I'd started doing pop-up dinners. And right. my, my very first one was so ridiculous. I, I didn't know any better. I'd never worked in a restaurant a day in my life, not even washing dishes as a kid. And, and I borrowed a friend's house, this beautiful venue. We had 24 people. I charged them $35 a head because I, I didn't know what to charge. And I did 24 courses. Whoa. <laughs> it was the most ridiculous, ludicrous thing ever. We started at, uh, I think it was five or maybe six. We finished at 11 p.m. And I was there till four in the morning doing dishes, at which point the homeowner came out and said, why don't you go home and come back tomorrow and finish this? Because they wanted to go to bed. I knew nothing. It was it was a disaster, but it was also a huge success from a food perspective. People were just so excited. And like, like I'll never forget the very first thing I ever served people. Uh, this will sound crazy, but I, I had already delved into the foods of the Apache and even more historically, the foods of the Membriano people, the, the mm-hmm. historic indigenous people of the region. And so I was taking um, prickly pear tuna, it's the, the fruit of the prickly pear cactus, and I would skin it, I would hollow it out, get all the seeds out, and now I had this cup of uh, sweet cactus fruit. And then in the bottom I put this uh, indigenous herb called chuchupate. It, uh, it has more medicinal herbal effects, but it, it was bitter. And so that one in the bottom, hmm. I put a blueberry and I piped in some goat cheese mousse, tempura battered wow. it. Tempura batter to deep fried it. But the, the funny thing, and, and this really sh- played out the rest of my career, I would t- I took an oil lamp flue, the glass cover to the oil lamp, yeah. and I rested the tempura battered, deep fried, stuffed cactus fruit on top. And on the bottom, I took some new, uh, Hatch New Mexico green chilies, soaked it in Everclear, and then I lit it on fire. Oh, wow. So the idea was that anyone who knows that smell of roasting green chilies, uh, yep. it's addictive. And so I had that roasting smell wafting out of the, the flue and then that delicious deep fried fruit on top that people would eat. It was, you know, what a way to start a career. But uh, also it, it was funny because uh, one of my guests thought it would be interesting to pick up the flue and try to get the chili and when they did Uh that it it created some i don't know geothermal physical thing where it basically exploded this big gas of um flame shot out the sides (laughs) and and so with that my career was off to an explosive beginning well and and uh you know you this is a great context to see sort of your evolution. And I think just with that description of uh, the prickly pear uh, being deep fried and, and the, uh, the aroma of the, the hatch chilies, you're getting, I think we're getting a sense of your creativity and also, you know, your desire to reflect the flavors of the communities in which you are a part of. Now, this is a, this is a show about, you know, the American Midwest, of which New Mexico is not a part, but you are a native, um, you know, of, of the Midwest and ultimately, ultimately returned back, uh, living in Missouri and took, you know, some of the experiences you had out West, um, and applied those, uh, I don't know how, approaches or theories to a whole new uh, kind of uh, local genre. Um, and that's the Ozarks. 
Um, now, a lot of people, you know, don't even know the term Ozark. Um, what does it mean to be Ozark? And, and then how does that, you know, uh, translate into, cul- you know, a culinary experience or, or food on the plate? Yeah, well, the Ozarks technically are the Ozark Plateau, uh, which is the bottom half of Missouri and the top third of Arkansas. Uh, little tips of Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, it, it's a geographic region that you can see on a map, and it's over time, it's not as uh, defined, but it is a plateau. Um, I think in modern language, it's more interesting to talk about the culture, the Ozark culture. And it's kind of interesting because my family comes from St. Genevieve, Missouri. Um, I'm born mm-hmm. and raised in St. Louis, and, um, and so my family moved... Well, I guess from Grand Rapids to St. Genevieve in the 1840s. And so long time down there. And back at that time, that was one of the main gateways to the Ozarks. We do not in any way, shape or form identify as Ozark culture, um, which is interesting because as this project's gone on, I'm realizing the vast diversity of subcultures within the Ozarks. And um, and many who don't ide- identify as Ozark, but are absolutely a part of that definition. And so for me, I really, um, I look at what culture has been shared throughout time as how we define it. So there was a book called Shepherd of the Hills that was put out in uh, 1907 by um, Harold Bell. And it, he was a guy from out east. He went to uh, lived down there for health reasons, and he started writing passages back to the papers back east, and it ultimately led to a book, which led to a couple of movies, and and it was the first time a highlight was put on the Ozark region. Now, he was uh, in southwest Missouri, uh, what we think of as so uh, the Springfield, Missouri area, a little south of there, Table Rock, Silver Dollar City, uh, all these touristy places that we know of now. And uh, back then, though, that was like very rural and very mm-hmm. isolated. And, and, um, and so that culture that he painted a picture of is what we still to this day think of with the Ozarks. And we still um, see it in modern TV and modern movies, you know, uh, think of, um, well, the TV show Ozark, of course, and and then Winter's Bone. I mean, this is rural, independent, isolated people and, and uh, a, a lot of drugs and racism and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Back then, mm-hmm. back then it was the rugged West. And, um, and so we get things like Lil Abner, for those who are old enough to remember that cartoon. The Beverly, Gosh, Hill, I, yeah. the, the Beverly Hillbillies. These all come from that same stereotype of what the Ozarks were. And it really stuck with it for a long time um, because what positives were portrayed out of the Ozarks? When I ask people from the Ozarks, they can't even answer that. And it really became one of the motivations behind the restaurant because I never intended to open an Ozark restaurant. I just wanted to explore the food of my childhood. And it led to all these crazy research projects that ultimately said, you know, I think we need to uh, reclaim this definition or or paint a picture that gives a more accurate representation of that that history and culture. And I'm so glad that you decided to go down this rabbit hole because it it is infinitely fascinating um, because it is an area that is that is overlooked and and certainly I don't think that you know a lot of folks, particularly outside of the immediate region, really understand the nuances of what it you know culturally means to be Ozark and and obviously how that is is then translated into to food. Um, you just talked about all these crazy research projects, and I know one of them was about exploring old cookbooks, and I think that predated your um, opening the restaurant. What did you find when you started to explore those old cookbooks when you moved back to Missouri? Well, the reason I uh, started going down that route is, I, again, I don't know any better. I've never done this. Um, uh, it was just curiosity that led me to even start this project. And and so I, the first thing I thought was, 
Wouldn't it be interesting to base a restaurant off of all these old church cookbooks? Because all the old churches have them. Mm -hmm. and, and at the time, uh, my spouse was doing regional ministry, kind of like bishop work in the Ozarks. And I said, when you're at the churches, ask if they've got one of these old cookbooks. Because one, they'll be thrilled that someone wants it. Yes. <laughs> They're so great, though. I'm sorry. I am totally addicted to community cookbooks, church cookbooks. I have a bunch of them. Um, and I bet, uh, you know, our audience does, too. Because they are just this um, illuminating, like, window into, you know, a very specific community. You know, and you have all these, you know, recipes that are passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. I mean, there's some gems in there. Um, there's a lot of fluff in there. And mm. it's funny that I use the word fluff because, of course, there's the fluffy jello salads and the oh, yes. green bean casseroles. But here's the interesting thing. I, I got enough of those. And I said, oh, I'm not really finding meat on the bones, so to speak. Nothing that I could build a restaurant on uh, because it wasn't quite old enough. It wasn't unique enough. Uh, it, it still wasn't defining anything, Midwest or the Ozarks. And in the process, I found this book on the history of Missouri cookbooks. Like, who knew people wrote books about the history of Missouri cookbooks? But this, this woman did. And in her book, she talks about two different companies that came into the Midwest and Missouri specifically in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And they went around to all the churches and um, helped them create these books. Now, this is interesting because they would provide like a stock set of recipes and then the church would add their own to make it their cookbook. Mm -hmm. But you need enough recipes to make a book that you can sell. And it's, it's all intended to be a fundraiser. And so when you go through these community cookbooks, you will um, you'll see a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And that's why. So that was interesting. Um, and, and I have a, a nice big shelf full of them that uh, I every now and then glance through today. That, though, led me to uh, the Springfield Public Library. Down there, they have a, his, a historic Ozark cookbook collection in Springfield, Missouri, um, not Illinois. And I went down there, and those books were really interesting, but it was clear that they were pretty much all written for the tourist. And we know that because it's always like squirrel fritters, possum casserole, <laughs> and it always had granny smoking a corncob pipe in a rocking chair on the front porch of the log cabin. So that didn't feel authentic either. That then sent me down to um, the University of Arkansas Fayetteville, where they have a rare book collection. In the rare book collection, they have an Ozark section. And in the Ozark section, they have a cookbook collection. And I went down there, and um, at this point, I'm looking at books from like 1905 to 1910, some really interesting things, uh, but it still felt touristy. It still felt like it all followed that Shepherd of the Hills book. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the other interesting thing is all these books at Springfield and Fayetteville, I immediately would get on eBay and every single one of them was available for two, three or four dollars. So that's interesting, but it still was. So so parallel of this. Now I'm starting to talk more publicly on social media about what I'm looking to do. And and I kept hearing from people, especially um, reporters. So how is this any different than Appalachian cuisine when we know that the, the majority of people moving into the Ozarks when it was being settled were from Appalachia? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. I want to hear your answer to that, and I, I want to respond to that. Well, it, it was really um, bugging me because why do we have to compare it? And, and part of it was ego because everyone said, well, isn't what you're doing what Sean Brock already did with Appalachia? Sean Brock is a, a famous chef. And I'm like, no, I'm doing my thing. You know, I'm doing my research and paying homage to my people and telling the story of my people. And and so it kind of irked me a bit. And so it, it drove me even more to keep digging. Um, and just to give a little bit of an answer to that question, there is flora and fauna that is specific to the Ozarks. There are techniques that we find that are specific to the Ozarks. The, the one that is um, the most clear as far as we can tell is the idea of gig suckers 
uh, nighttime spear fishing of catfish. Um, we haven't we haven't seen that anywhere else, and and it's why when Anthony Bourdain and Andrew Zimmern came to the area, that's what they wanted to do. Um, that and then squirrel hunting, but <laughs> squirrel mm-hmm. hunting is not exclusive. Um, all that though led me to Little Rock and to their public library, and that's when everything exploded. That's the first time I laid hands on f- original source manuscripts letters, family journals. Um, we've never used a textbook in any of this process. It's all firsthand documents. There, and that's, there's nothing better than that. Oh, the, the look of the calligraphy, the, the staining of the paper. You can see sweat or tears or whatever on the paper. It's just, it's this beautiful thing and to be able to handle it because for these archives, these aren't cherished pieces of gold. I mean, it, it's a letter that's 150, 200 years old. And so you're still able to handle it there. You know, some of them are digital, but for the most part, you can still lay your hands on these documents. You can look at the, the, uh, you know, the old library cards that shows no one's checked this out in 30 years or something and know that the person who wrote this and the person who received it and maybe a grandkid are all that's ever touched this piece of paper and have put a piece of their life, their family history onto it. And then here I am reading it, reading these intimate details of their lives. And 99% of it has nothing to do with the restaurant, but it tells me who they were. And somewhere in there, they'll say, and I hunted some deer, (laughs) you know, and it's just a minor detail. But at this point, I jump in and over time, I've realized I jump in and do what's called midrash. Uh, anyone who has come from uh, the Jewish tradition knows this term. It's what the ancient rabbis up until modern times have always done, and that is fill in the gaps in an educated way to complete a story. And so mm. uh, I, I think the most famous example that people know is, I think it's called the the Red Tent, I, I think. Um but it's the idea, you know, you, you take any story in, in scripture, for example, and you can start saying, well, here's a character that was mentioned that we don't know anything about, but we can make some educated decisions about what their life might have been about and then tell their story and how that right. plays into it. Well, that's what all I'm doing here. I don't, I'm never given um, deep detail or lengthy recipes. They just didn't do it back then. It was all oral tradition. It was passed down from mother to son or, or you know, father to daughter. And, and, and so it wasn't written down. And we can talk about when it does start getting written down, but the time period I'm looking at, it's not. And so... And what is that time period ex- exactly? Because I know that you, the time period that you're looking at is pretty specific. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you kind of stick to that time frame when you, you, you open your restaurant as well. Very diligently, we stick to it. Uh, it drives my staff nuts. <laughs> we, are, we are pre-1870. I'm specifically looking at the 1820 to 1840 area. Um, I do go earlier and I do go a little bit later. I never come past 1870 though. And that's because of the industrial revolution, trains come in the area, Mm -hmm. newspapers start coming in. And so now it's just a, it's a mess. It's too hard to discern what's authentic to the time. And so what I look at is that point in time when the Osage people, the indigenous people of the area at, at that point, first come in contact with the European settlers, the immigrants, and those uh, settlers and immigrants sometimes would bring the enslaved with them. Mm-hmm. When those three distinct cultures come together at one period, to me that is the best opportunity to define what is Ozark cuisine or Ozark food. I can look earlier, that's why I did at my New Mexico restaurant, and say, well, what did the Osage and the people before the Osage eat? And I, I have that information, but at some point... I have to say, look, I'm just a chef at a restaurant. I'm not writing a dissertation. I'm not trying to do a museum. It has to have relevance. And all those things that we see in the um, the ancient times, we're already doing because we forage for our food. 
Right. So as I gather pawpaw, they would have gathered pawpaw. As I serve acorn, they would have served acorn. And, um, and so I'm already honoring that, but it also, that helps me to not get into this uh, icky area of appropriation. You know, the Osage story is not my story to tell. I, I need that information to tell my story, but I can't tell their story. That's theirs to tell. And uh, we are working with the Osage Nation, who's now in Oklahoma, to, to see how, I don't know, how we can tell their story as part of ours or separate from ours, give them a platform. We don't even know yet, uh, but we, are, we have that conversation, just like we are with the enslaved. Right. And, and I, I am looking forward to ha- continuing that specific conversation about, uh, you know, the descendants of enslaved individuals and um, telling their story as well as, as things unfold. And these three distinct cultures coming together, I think, are, are so, uh, so poignant. I mean, from, from 1870, now fast forward to 2019, when you opened your restaurant. Um, and, you know, you now, you know, while you say you're not a museum and you're not a dissertation in many ways, you know, you're almost a living, you're not a living, you're not a museum in the sense that, you know, you are preserving exact, but you also are, I think, being authentic to, as you, as you mentioned, to, you know, the, the ingredients to the, to the process. And you have some really interesting, you know, practices like foraging that are, um, integrated, but storytelling um, and the storytelling and education along with the dishes that you serve is is critically important to conveying that, you know, Ozark story, these three cultures and doing it without, you know, that cultural appropriation. Um, so uh, bring us into your restaurant. Um, if I were to sit down or, you know, me and, and, uh, you know, the, the other audience members, we come together into your restaurant. Um, what, what are we, what are you serving? Um, and what are you telling us when we're sitting at that table? Yeah. So the, the interesting, um, thing about what we serve is people expect us to do, uh, ham hock, cornbread, collard greens. And, Early on, we, we did do those, but not in ways you would ever recognize them. Because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not as young as I used to be, and my career is not as young as it used to be, and I want to do fine dining. That's where I find my passion. Uh, I think Fine dining with acorn. Fine dining with acorns with Ozark food. And, and so I, I find that um, many people don't quite know what to do with that. And sometimes they say, oh, your, your prices for uh, Ozark food are ridiculous. And they don't say that once they've sat down for the food though, because they realize if I serve them something they can make at home, then I've failed. Why would mm. you go to a restaurant if you can make it at home? You can probably make it better and it's definitely gonna be fresher. And so when you come into the restaurant, we do tasting menu only. We always do a seven course menu. And um, none of those, you know, the old school way of doing tasting menus where it's like, breathe in, and that's considered a course. No, <laughs> you, know, you know, we do substantive food. And so um, through the seven courses, each course is, we don't have servers. You sit around um, a kitchen, which is in the center of the room. We only have mm-hmm. 24 people per round. And during COVID, we're only doing a even smaller, 12 to 14. And... You watch us cook in front of you. Um, oh, wow. And we're this constant dichotomy of old and new. So, for example, our kitchen has no open flame. It's all induction. We have immersion circulators for sous vide baths. We do uh, electric smoking guns to infuse smoke. We do all these modern things. Which is why I wouldn't consider you a museum for exactly that reason. While well, you're, you know... Uh, true to you know the the authenticity and the roots of of the Ozark cuisine and sticking very specifically to this period before 1870, you're still adding in 21st century you know methodology too, and balancing it with we always use cast iron. You know mm. we're we're big proponents of lodge cast iron because that is authentic to the period, but it also in 2021 is really smart when you yep. have all these electric cooktops 
because it retains heat. heat. So it's it's smart in that way. But when we look at the food, so you watch me prepare it. We do beautiful platings. It's all about um, uh, beautiful dishes. Almost all of our dishes are custom and, and related to the Ozarks in that time. How cool. Uh, and then uh, the food is gorgeous to look at because guess what? People are going to take a picture and post it on Instagram. So I need it to look <laughs> good. And, um, and then when you get the dish, what you get is um, something that is familiar, but you have no idea what it is. And mm. that's the whole, um, the, the whole strategy. For example, uh, early on, we had this 90 year old come in for his grandson's graduation. And he came in for dinner, and when they sat down, the grandson said, my grandpa has lived in the Ozarks his entire life. He's 90 years old, and we've really been looking forward to this. And my sous chef and I looked at each other, and our, our stomachs dropped because we thought, oh, no. <laughs> the, the jig is up. They're, they're going to say this is not Ozark because we're, we do a lot of interpretation and, and visioning. And, and at the end of the meal, he called us over. He had been quiet the whole meal. And he said, well, I didn't recognize a single thing you just served me, but every course reminded me of my childhood. Oh, that was, you could not have said something better to us because that's what we want. If, if, if we've gone too far in our artistic creativity, then we've lost you. But if, right. if there's a smell or a texture or a flavor that brings you back to your childhood, then, then we've done it. And, and, and so you wanted to know some examples. Um, you know, my dessert right now is one I'm really excited about. Uh, it's the seventh course, and we're serving chinkapin. Uh, chinkapin is an endangered species chestnut. It is, uh, from my understanding, there's only one small grove of it left anywhere. Um, and the guy who's been tending this hidden grove has slowly started to release saplings uh, through the Chinkapin Foundation. And a, a chef who knows him sent me a bunch of uh, Chinkapin nuts. And so right now I'm doing, uh, it's it, it's a fancy French dessert, but it's, it's a Chinkapin chestnut mousse where the inside has foraged persimmon um, an apricot custard, and it's all on top of a chinkapin acorn shortbread um, and finished with malted milk crumb, which is like a streusel kind of a thing. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. So how long does it take you to experiment with all of these different types of ingredients and, and creating these, you know, unique, dare I say, concoctions in, you know, these, you know, different types of flavors altogether and different textures. And I mean, it just seems like it's not something that, oh, you know what, I'm obviously going to put, you know, this very specific chestnut with this persimmon over here and, and this, you know, shortbread. I mean, it's at least on uh, from a layperson's perspective, seems like something you really would have to spend a lot of time on to um, get right. You know, I, I think um, this explanation is only going to have relevance to the geeky side of the culinary world because it really comes down to when I came into the industry. Uh, you know, we're looking at 15 or so years ago, and that was right when the molecular gastronomy movement, which we no longer call that, we call it modernist or something. Uh, but this is when Grant Ackett's was opening in Linea, uh, El Bulli in Catalonia, Spain was uh, the big thing. And, and it was just 
going all over the world. But remember, I, I wasn't in the industry. I was doing nonprofit work. So I was like watching from the sidelines and learning as much as I could. And, and a big part of that movement was the idea of taking an ingredient and transforming it into something else. So what does that mean? Well, maybe um, we have watermelon juice and we turn it into watermelon um, jelly or watermelon powder or watermelon smoke. And so my brain has always been wired to look at ingredients and think, um, one, not the traditional, you know, this should mm -hmm. be sweet and crunchy. No, I never do that. I, I say sweet or sour, and of course that's a, a spectrum. Um, maybe bitter, definitely umami uh, is always a hit. And then for me, texture is huge. Mm. So my dishes every time should, I always tell myself, give me something mushy, something gooey, and something crunchy. If you do <laughs> that, they're going to love it. Okay, and so that's what we do. And and so, you know, that that chinkapin dish, yeah, I, I had some chinkapin. I said, I want to tell the story. So that's the starting point for me. I want to tell the story about chinkapin. And um, so here's how we're going to do it. I, I, here's my gooey. That's the, the custard on the inside. Here's my mush. That's the mousse on the outside. There's my crunch. That's a cookie on the bottom. And let's put, add some more crunch on the outside. That's a different type of crunch. And that's the milk from the granola-y type stuff. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of happens. Um, and, and being a forager, I know these flavors. Um, I know them like the back of my hand. You know, I say persimmon. Most people think of the big orange persimmon. No, 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 no. I'm talking the, the wild persimmon. It's like purple and gray and black, and you can't pick it before the first frost or the tannins will seize your mouth up. When you pick that at the right time, it's like dates. It's like a mm. citrusy date. It's the most delicious fruit, unless it's not ripe, and then it's the worst <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> well, that's why you need a, a discerning you know, uh, expert such as yourself that can figure all that out. And so we can actually, you know, enjoy the goodness rather than, you know, getting that, that bitterness. So <laughs> we were just to go out there on our own. Uh, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about storytelling and, and first in the context of what's happened during COVID, because it's clear that, you know, your experience is very immersive um, that this culinary experience brings, you know, that the diner directly into the kitchen, into the history, into, you know, the lifespan of these ingredients. Um, but if you can't go and sit down, now it sounds like, you know, you, you are open at least, you know, to an extent, but I know a lot of folks are, you know, deciding to take out rather than dine in. And you've managed to find a, a way to still, um, tell those stories um, to people, even if they're eating your food in their own home. How'd you pull that off? Yeah, the, so in the two years we've been open, we have made well over 150 different dishes at this point. And we don't use recipes. Um, we're inspired by the story or inspired by the ingredient. And so all that's kind of lost to time, or maybe I should say lost to social media pictures. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, when we started doing the carryout, it was really disheartening at first because I couldn't tell the story. And if you don't have the context, then I don't know, the dish is fine, but it's not the same. And so we finally figured out that I couldn't tell the story to the people who were dining in even um, because I had a mask and just mm. spraying air. And so um, I had a person on staff who was technologically savvy. I said, what if we do little short YouTube videos, you create a QR code, um, someone can scan it with their phone, and then that video will pop up, and I'll keep the videos succinct and, and, and um, make sure the energy that I would bring to the dining room is transferred through the, the video. And so that's what we've done. And what's become cool is we were doing that for in-house, but then we added it as a sticker to the to-go. So every course is in its own balsa wood box. The balsa wood's lined with rice paper, so they're truly compostable and chemical-free. There's no other... Which is a huge component of, you know, yeah, your approach. Yeah, it was, it was approach. driving me crazy, all these compostable to-go containers that really aren't. Aren't. They, they have to go into commercial composting, and it just doesn't happen. So these truly are. It's just wood and rice paper, no chemicals at all. 
And so the food goes in there and then the sticker goes on front. When you zap it, you get this two minute video. So I basically am sitting there in your dining room with you telling you the story behind the dish. One of the cool things that I hadn't even thought of is now we have record of all of these dishes for the first time. So we already have something like 30 videos on our YouTube channel where it's me explaining the dish in detail with the context, with the ingredients, with the forage, with the techniques, with everything. And, and so it's going to be a really good uh, way of keeping memory. And for, and for those that, that can't come and visit you in Missouri, they can check out the YouTube yeah. uh, under Bullrush Ozarks um, to, to get a sense of uh, the kind of complex work that you're doing and, and the t kind of experiential culinary, um, you know, uh, immersive experience you're doing. Um, I just, I, it's, and I've taken a look at the YouTube. It's just so cool. Like I, I am, I am more and more just uh, excited about the work that you're doing. And um, uh, one, one type of, or one aspect of the work that you're doing that I, you have to tell, um, tell us before we let you go is about the work that you're doing, um, telling the story of, one of the three aspects of that Ozark culture, and that is uh, the the culture of uh, it, the enslaved and, and their descendants. And um, you know, this is an area that you've developed a, a you know big passion for. Um, but also, as we discussed uh, earlier in in our chat, very sensitive to the fact that you know it's not your story to tell necessarily. Um, how are you bringing you know this very important cultural story? Um, to life, and how is that playing into the the food narrative of the Ozarks and what you're doing? Yeah, so I can't um, I, I can't ignore the story, but yeah, it's not my story to tell. And and quite frankly, there's not much documentation around what the enslaved were eating uh, in the Ozarks at that time. And so um, this kind of dovetailed in another project because we. Are working with historic seeds and there's right. a movement to um, have african-american farmers on the north side of st louis um, get some support and and so we've started reaching out to more and more of uh, those farmers to buy their produce for the restaurant right and, reviving uh, that african-american farming uh, you know culture and tradition Missouri. right because when we talk about the produce of the ozarks during that period who was raising it well very often it was the enslaved and so all this is dancing in my head and in the process of doing some research we found a wpa era interview with freed slaves from kaufman missouri it's a little bitty town just happens to be near my family's cabin um, that we've had since the 1940s and there are three people who were interviewed who were freed slaves from one plantation or it wasn't really a plantation but a farm in that area and their names were unique enough that I thought, I wonder if we could trace living descendants. And so uh, we have history interns from St. Louis University, and uh, one of them got on Ancestry.com and started uh, doing the, the legwork to find if we could find living descendants. He was doing great, and then COVID hit, and we lost him, but he mm. got us to the 1980s. And I have some new volunteers who are helping me with this right now. Um, and And... There, the hope is that we'll find living descendants. Okay, so at this point, we don't know the outcome, but here's what I hope happens. We will reach out to any living descendants and say, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we got to you. Here's what we know about your ancestor, um, which they may already know about. We don't know. Right. And um, here's the larger context of the restaurant and the history. Is this a story? Well, tell us your family traditions around celebrations, food, um, and agriculture. Okay, after they tell us that, if they want to tell us that, then is this something you would like to share with the community in some way? We have a venue, we have a voice, meaning our access to media and, and our social media. Right. Is this something you would like to share with the community? And then we will support you any way we can. At no point will this integrate into our story, but 
just like with the Osage, it's going to inform the choices we make. Right. And, and now we can bring back a piece of that history, to give voice to the past that we just don't hear. And we're not the first ones to think of this. Um, you know, Michael Twitty's the most famous person who has, has looked at that through the Gulag culture. And so I, I just have never seen anyone do it in the Midwest or specifically the Ozarks for sure. And we don't know where it's going. Um, we're open to anything, but it's it sure is interesting. No question about that. And, and you know, it seems like a, a pretty significant undertaking and one um, that is certain to chart your path, um, at least partially, um, over the next uh, few years. I know I'm excited to see where things lead on on that particular uh, project, along with so many others. You have so many irons in the fire, so uh, so much invested in, uh, again, trying to retain this authenticity and do it in a sustainable um, yet approachable manner so people understand, you know, what they're getting um, and appreciating where it comes from, not just where it comes from, from, you know, the the earth, so to speak, but where it comes from contextually uh, in society. And, and I, you know, sort of hope that people pay attention to the work that you're doing because I think that it could be a really meaningful roadmap for for others that want to blend together, um, you know, history, culture, um, and, um, you know, honoring the, the traditions agriculturally, uh, you know, and, um, you know, socially of the regions that they're in. What, a, what an incredible uh, story. Rob Connolly, thank you so much for joining us on Eat Your Heartland Out. And, um, you know, hopefully everybody will check out that YouTube and um, learn even more about the Ozarks. I know I learned a lot and I, I know that our audience did too. Thanks again. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.